Um, let me read for you our passage that we're going to be diving into today, and then we'll jump right on in. So if you got a Bible, go to Ephesians chapter 1, we're going to be in verses 17 through 23. Ephesians 1, 17 through 23. As you're turning there, let me just say like happy 4th of July weekend, right? Happy 4th of July weekend. That's awesome. Um, I love the freedom that we have as, as a country and as a nation. I think, you know, my freedom, you know, I may want to exercise that a little bit different than you. I'm probably not going to eat potato salad. Some of you guys totally are this weekend and that's up to you. That's between you and Jesus. I'm not going to touch it. But I'm excited about leveraging my freedom to do one of the things that I think is my favorite thing that is afforded to by the freedom we have in this country, and that is to just simply preach the gospel today. All right, so if you've got a Bible, we're going to um, dive in, be able to read it together. We're going to Ephesians 1, 17 through 23. This is the word of the Lord. Paul's writing to the church in Ephesus. He's writing to the church in McDonough as well. He says this, I keep asking that God of our Father, Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet, appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is the body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we get the prayers of a pastor of an early church to remind us what our prayers as the current church should be. That the eyes of our hearts would be open, enlightened, so that the light of the gospel can shine through to not just make us more enlightened, mind-changed people, but more enlightened, life-changed people so that the world around us looks less dark and more light because we're a part of it. We pray as the gospel meets us where we are, we pray, Jesus, that it does not leave us the same way we came in. In your name, amen. All right, so to recap a little bit of kind of where we've been at so far, uh, we, as a church, we've been going through the book of Ephesians. We've been leaning into our identity in Christ. We just got through reading this passage in verse 17 where Paul talks about his big prayer from the Ephesians as he shifts through all of this praise for God in verses three through 14 of this opening chapter. Then he goes into switching from praise and really talking about his prayer for them. And he says, I'm thanking God for you. I'm thanking God for your love for Christ and your love for the church. And he says, I'm praying that you would know him more. I'm praying that you would know the type of God he is. And last week we kind of leaned into this tension between the world's pull to make us people who know ourselves and God's pull that says, no, you really need to know me. And last week we ended by saying it really, friends, it is all about who you know. And that tension, guys, Again, I want to remind you this because this is what we're wading into as people who are trying to follow Christ, trying to live out of this new God-given identity that Paul was talking to the church in Ephesus and I'm trying to talk to us as a church in McDonough. There's this tension in reality and you feel this in your heart whether you realize it or not, to try to be something, to try to know more about what is your purpose, your hope, and your future. And you think if you can just learn some more things, if you can just figure some more things out, if you can just become something that you're not, then and then you will be better. 
your life will be more happy. You will have more joy. People will cut you off less in traffic and life will just generally be better. If you can just know more about yourself, the world calls this self-actualization. It doesn't usually use that word, but what you hear in this and how we hear this all around us is when you hear, do what makes you happy. When you hear words like, be true to you. When you hear even, I hear this from even people who uh, follow Christ or say they follow Christ, saying, I'm, I'm trying to be the best version of myself. That is self-actualization. And God says, no, the best version of yourself is still hopeless. The best version of yourself still has sin that is not paid for. And says, don't get consumed with knowing yourself or trying to become something that you're not. Instead, this is what Paul is saying, is realize who you already are in Christ. Realize what has been done for you, what is there for you, what is on the table for you. And then and there, that is where you'll be able to find true life. It comes from knowing God. And when you know who God is, then you know who you are. That's not self-actualization. What Paul actually calls us to is the same thing Jesus called to. Not self-actualization, self-denial. Because in us denying ourselves and following Christ that we figure out what truly is the purpose in life. The purpose that God put you here for, that he put me here for. And I love this because it's freeing. I don't have to look at my life and then go on social media and look at your life and get bummed out because my life doesn't look like your life. And you don't have to go on and look at my life and what I do tomorrow on 4th of July and go, man, I wish somebody would invite me to ride jet skis. Because you're not trying to become something that you're not. Paul says the whole hope of us, if we're going to follow Christ, it hinges upon knowing what you already have in Christ. And this is what he begins to unpack. We'll start where he does it in verse 17. He says, I keep asking the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit, and that's capital S there, that's a Holy Spirit, a spirit of wisdom and revelation, so that you may know him better. Again, that's the whole purpose. That's, what, that's the reason Paul is praying these things for them. He says, if you can get to the place where you know this God better, then that changes everything. Not knowing where the market is going, not knowing what type of president is going to be next, not knowing uh, how to get your kids to behave, not knowing, uh, like we talked about last week, not knowing how to get your husband to load the dishwasher your way, just knowing the Father, knowing him for who he is. And then he goes to verse 18, and he kind of says the same thing in a different way. That for the musicians in the room, the left brain people in the room, the artists in the room, we hear this and we go, oh, that's so beautiful. I love how that sounds. He says this, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, to which all the creatives in the room go, oh, yes. And the, you know, those of us who are more in touch with poetry, when he says, I want you to know him better, we're like, okay. And then he says, I want the eyes of your heart to be enlightened. We're like, okay, now I know what you're talking about. Kind of. Because my eyes and my heart, my, my heart have eyes. What are you talking about there, Paul? Okay, so we all can pretend like we get what he's saying there, but we all kind of don't have any idea what he's saying there, right? The eyes of my heart, what are we talking about, Paul? All right, so let's, let's try to unpack that, all right, and figure out what in the world he's getting at here when he's saying, I want you to know him, and he says, I want your eyes of your heart to be enlightened. The best place, again, I've told you this a million times before, the best thing to do in order to understand scripture is to go where? To other passages of scripture. And if you can find something that Jesus said about the subject matter, that is the best place to go, all right? So we actually, good news, have that. If you got a Bible, you can flip there. I'm not gonna show it to you on the screen. Go to Matthew 13, 13. 
So Matthew 13, 13, 13. Matthew 13 is, is a really awesome chapter of the Bible. Jesus is just laying out all of these parables and people are just going like, what? He just got in this series of parable after parable after parable and people are like, what is happening right now? Like, I don't understand about these sheep and goats and these coins and these seeds falling on this soil. And Jesus, I didn't, I thought you were a carpenter, not a farmer. What are we talking about here? And he goes through all these parables and some people get them and some people do not get them. And then at the very end of this chapter of 13, or kind of right in the middle of it, they're asking Jesus, they're like, Jesus, can you just speak to us plainly? Can you just tell us like, simply put what you mean? Can you give us the cliff notes, the, the abridged, not confusing version of this? Anybody ever felt like that with Jesus? Jesus, can you just tell it to me straight? Okay, so Jesus is kind of letting them in on this right here. In Matthew 13, 13, if you're reading along, this is what he says. He says, this is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. When he talks about that, he's saying, though seeing with their eyes, he's given us a clue here. He's saying they do not see with their heart. Though hearing with earthly ears, they do not understand. See, what Jesus is saying here is there's something more going on to you than the, the optic nerve in your ears. He says, there is a seeing and an understanding that goes much deeper than what our eyes can perceive and what our ears can take in and listen to. He's taking it to the heart. In verse 14, he says, in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will, never, you will be ever hearing, but never understanding. Always listening, always trying to out, out to figure out what is the new thing to listen to, who's the new person to listen to, what podcast should I have listened to that I haven't listened to yet, what book should I read that I haven't read yet, what thing our, 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 our wise person should I be figuring out. They will be always hearing, but never understanding. You'll be ever seeing, but never perceiving. I'll always have stuff in front of my face. I'll always be watching something. I'll always be scrolling through something. My screen time will be 14 hours a day. I will be always seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. Okay, so look at the connection Jesus is drawing there. He's saying they've got jacked up eyes and they have jacked up ears. And he's not talking about physical stuff. Right after he says those two things, he says it is because their heart is callous. They can't see what they need to see and they can't hear what they need to hear. And it's not because they have dysfunctional eyes or ears that need to go to the doctor. It's because their heart has become calloused as they hardly hear with their ears and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and their ears and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and I would heal them. And then in verse 16, again, he's, he's talking to specifically his 12 disciples at the time. In verse 16, he says, but blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. Now, again, I know we give the disciples a bad rap and think that they were kind of dumb or slow to get it. But do you think anybody around that circle right there thought when Jesus said, but blessed are your ears and your eyes, that he was talking about Peter's ears or Thomas's eyes? No. Everybody in that circle right there, they knew that what Jesus was after there was something different than these cartilage flaps on the side of our head and these things that are in our skull. It was something different. It was about a heart that could understand who he truly was and what was he all about. And see, our eyes, this is why I think Jesus is after this. Your eyes, like your physical eyes, they have this ability to protect you, right? Eyes keep you from walking off a cliff. 
Uh, eyes keep you f- from walking into bonfires. Your eyes keep you from walking out of the house with that on. Your eyes save you a, a lot of trouble most of the time. And if you don't have eyes, you have a wife, and she helps you with walking out of the house with that on. See, your eyes, they help us. And what he's saying is, I need you to see with the eyes of your heart. But what he asks or what he's praying that our, our eyes would be is he prays that our eyes would be enlightened. That the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. And what this word enlightened means here is this, this is this uh, picture with words of saying that our eyes, these eyes of our heart, they are currently in darkness and there needs to be a light that is shined into them so that you can actually see what's going on. Because we all know this, if we turn all the lights on off in this room and closed all the doors in this room, it would become incredibly dark. And then if I told you, hey, I just released 53 rats, sewer rats in the room, do you know what there would be? absolute chaos, okay? Like it would be absolute chaos. Now, if I release 53 rats and I turn the lights on, it would be a little less chaos, but at least you could see where you were going. Nobody would probably get trampled. We would all get out of here pretty quick, right? No. (laughs) But the light, the light is what helps us know where to go. Light is what helps us know to do. And what Paul is after here is, I think he's even taking us a little bit further and he's gonna unpack this a little bit when he gets into 417 in the same book. He says, I tell you this, and this helps us understand what in the world he means here at the end of this first chapter by seeing what he says here in this fourth chapter. He says, I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord. Like, this is a big deal. Listen, don't, don't miss this. That you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. And the Gentiles, again, that's him speaking to the Ephesians who are surrounded by this Gentile culture an anything-goes culture, a you-do-you culture, a self-actualized culture. Get one of the gods on your side and you'll be good to go culture. He says, you guys are no longer like them. He says, they are darkened by their understanding, which is, isn't that wild? Again, this is the, this is the wisdom of God to say the people who think they know the most in God's side of things, they are actually the darkest. They actually know the least. They are darkened by their understanding. And the, the really dangerous thing about worldly understanding is it fools you into believing that you have all the answers so that you don't need God. You're enlightened. They're darkened in their understanding. And so they're separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Again, he's tying all of this back. My heart has grown hard because I would rather stay in the dark with my wisdom than come into the light because of God's wisdom. That's why Paul prays fervently. He says, I never stop praying. I'm continually and perpetually praying that the eyes of your heart would receive the light of the gospel so that you could see and believe, that you could see and know who God really is and then who you really are. And from here, what he does is he says, I want the eyes of your heart to be enlightened, to know. And then he proceeds to tell them three things. And we're gonna unpack these three things for the rest of our time here. The first thing that he says, I want the eyes of your heart to be enlightened so that you could know, so that you could know the hope to which he has called you. That's the first thing. If, you're, if, if you have a Bible and you're okay with writing stuff in it, just after that comma or before that comma right there, just write the number one, because these are the three things. He says, if your eyes are gonna be open, the eyes of your heart are gonna be open. These are the three things that I'm praying they could see first. First off, he says, I'm praying that they could be open so they could see the hope to which he has called you. Hope, good working definition of hope that I would give you is this. Hope is the assurance of reality that we have not fully experienced. See, this is different than I hope it rains 
Tuesday. This is me just kind of hopefully wishing that something good happens in the future. See, when Paul says that I want them to know the hope to which they've been called, it's not this thing that's in question of whether or not it may happen. When biblical hope is the assurance, it's going, this is where my life is anchored. This is where nothing can take me off of. This is assurance of a reality that I have not yet fully experienced. It's coming, it's there, and it is my hope. It's a hope that we're called to It's a hope that reminds us that we were absolutely and utterly hopeless without Christ. Absolutely, completely, totally hopeless without Christ. See, and that's the hope. The hope is in knowing that I have no hope in and of myself, that my only hope is him and that he is the one who has called me out. And so you may ask like, okay, if it is this this hope, let's go back to it. If it is this hope, to which he has called you. Well, what is that hope? What is that hope? He says, I want you to know the hope to which you were called. What is that hope? The best thing that I could take it to here, and again, this is in light of the context that we're in and just in light of the God we have. The hope to which you were called is the hope to a father. And not like you know him, not like you know yours, and not like I know mine the hope of God as father. This is the hope that we are called that again, go back all the way to the very beginning of, of verse 13, that there is, there's a father who predestined from the very beginning of time before the foundation of the world, that you should be called according to his purpose, that you should be transformed and redeemed out of the orphanage that you are currently in, this hopeless place that was hell on earth that he sent his son, perfect son, into to redeem you out of, to now invite you in and give you an inheritance and give you a new life. So what is this hope? This hope is that now I am a part of a fathered family where all of my needs are perfectly provided for. All of my security is perfectly taken care of. All of my self-esteem is perfectly bound up in who Jesus is. All of my future is taken care of forever. So I live with this eternal security. That's the hope. And there's this hope. This is maybe my favorite part because life is broken. Life doesn't make sense. It's this hope that everything that is bad, ill, and painful in this life will find its completion and find its purpose in some other place in eternity to where it doesn't make sense now. It's not gonna make sense now, but there will come a day when it does. That's this hope. This is this hope that he's called us to. Now, let's camp out on that word call for a second. We talked about hope. Call, okay. Well, how, how do I know? Like, I've been called to this hope. So Romans eight thirty helps us get an idea of what in the world we're talking about here, this idea of being called to it. He says, and these whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. So again, go back in this calling side of things. If you're still in Ephesians, which I hope you are, flip up to verses four and five. In verses four and five, it says that God, before the foundation of the world, you are chosen in him. And he is chosen people like me and you. He's chosen that all people would be able to find their hope and find their purpose in him. And in that chosenness, he has called you out of the life of sin that you were in and called you into this new life, a new plan, a new purpose, a whole new thing that again is the hope, which is being fathered and being in a family. That's the hope that he has called you to. And Paul, I'm gonna fast forward a little bit here to 4.1 to help you understand this. 
I've told you this before. I told you this when we first started the book of Ephesians. In chapters one through three, Paul is talking about our identity in Christ. He's talking about what in the world does it mean to be in Christ? And then chapters three or, or chapters four through six, he's saying, this is what it means to be in Christ in Ephesus. So he's saying, here's what it means. This is your identity. This is who you are in Christ. And then here's how you actually live this out. It's kind of, this is who you are and this is what you need to do. So in verse four, one, he says this, as he's turning that corner, it's kind of the hinge point, the fulcrum of the entire book of Ephesians. He says, as a prisoner of the Lord, he just got through telling them all the things that they are in Christ. Then he says, okay, now he finally, in chapter four, he finally starts getting to, here's what you need to do. He says, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling See, this is why, don't miss this connection here. The reason in 4.1 that Paul is praying, in 4.1 he says, I want you to live a life worthy of the calling, which is why in our verse today, he's saying, I am praying with all my heart that you hold on to the hope that you were called to. Because if you don't hold on to the hope that you were called to, you will never live a life worthy of the calling that he's given you. If you don't have eyes of a heart that are open to see the hope that is in him. And what's wild, guys, is like, that's a miracle. Like, your, the eyes of your heart will not be open unless God does it. You cannot make a mental ascent. You cannot hear the best preacher in the world who could take you there. You cannot reason or rationalize your way into it. God has to do it, and it is a miracle. He says, you've got to know this hope. And until your eyes of your heart get this hope, you will never, verse 4, uh, chapter four, verse one, you will never live a life worthy of the calling. And so we'll wander around in this life going, why do I do this? Why do I still do this? Why do I still fail at this? Why does it feel so hard? Why do I not feel like I've measured up? It's because my eyes are still in the dark and I have not seen him for the God he really is. He goes on from there. After he says, I want you to know that the, I want your eyes of your heart to be enlightened to the place where you can understand the hope to which you've been called. He goes to the next part, the next thing that he's praying for them. He says, I want the eyes of your heart to be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which you are called, comma. Then if you're, again, if you're writing, uh, taking notes in your Bible, you can just put a two right here. This is the second thing he wants them to know and understand. He says, I want you to know the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. I want you to know the riches of the glory inheritance in his holy people. I want you to know this. I want you to know the riches of this glorious inheritance in his holy people. Now, the second part right here, if you got a study Bible, it may say one thing. And like, if there are 15 people in here with study Bibles, half of the study Bibles in the room are gonna say he's talking about the inheritance that's coming to people who are in Christ. And the other half of the study Bibles are going to say that what he's talking about there is how the church of Christ is his inheritance, okay? Because again, you can read it and you kind of go, well, who are we talking about? Is the church and the people, are they God's inheritance? Or are we people who are experiencing the exceeding glorious riches of God's inheritance that's coming to us? So there's kind of this like, which one is it? And to me, the best place to figure it out is to just, again, go back to the context, which I would say is the same chapter, a couple of verses before, in 13 and 14. In 13 and 14, he's talking about the stuff about inheritance. He's talking about even what God gets in us. He says, you were marked in him. That's, that's us. That's those of us who are in Christ. You were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. 
Again, we talked about the Holy Spirit kind of being like an engagement ring, this promise that God is gonna come through for us, that he is gonna continue to hold true to his promise. And the Holy Spirit coming in our lives at the beginning is a promise that that's gonna find its fruition. He said, that's a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. And the hour there is us. And it's what we will get in Christ until the redemption of those who are God's possession. So to, to answer the question, of what in the world is this passage talking about when it says you, I want you to know the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. Sorry, but I think it's both. And I'm okay with that because over and over again, especially in the old Testament, we are talked about as God's inheritance. His holy people is his inheritance. Now understand this, as you get the inheritance from God, which is his Holy Spirit, what does his Holy Spirit do in your life? His Holy Spirit makes you more holy, more righteous, more blameless, more beautiful, more like him. So as you receive his inheritance, what, you do, what do you become better as? You become a better version of his inheritance. You become more holy. You become more glorified so that he inherits a beautiful, spotless, unblemished, perfect bride that is in the church. He says, that's what, is, that's what this is after. And so you, you could, again, I have four commentaries in my office. Two go one way and say, oh, this is unequivocally all about how God inherits the church. And then the other two say, this is unequivocally about what the church inherits in God. I just kind of went back a verse. I think it's both. That you have an amazing inheritance. And Paul, the reason he's praying this is so that you don't live here on planet earth, here in McDonough, here in Henry County, here in America, where everything seems like it's kind of swirling around the toilet. And it was like, how many more times will we swirl around the toilet before we finally get sucked down the drain? Paul is saying, in light of that, you have an inheritance. So you don't have to live with a scarcity mindset. You don't have to worry about, oh, can I afford to invite that person over? Can I afford to buy them a cup of coffee? Can I afford to pay their light bill? Can I afford to do these things? No, he says, you're part of a new family. And in this family, though you may live poverty and penniless here on earth, you will inherit the riches of the kingdom of God. So live free. Do what you need to do. Love like you need to love. Love like you're a part of a family that does things different than this earth. The next thing that he tells him here after he says, first of all, you, you've been called to hope and future. And then he tells them that you are gonna receive this glorious inheritance. He takes them from there. And he says, here's the next thing I need you to know. You know his incomparably great power for us who believe. All right, so if you're, again, if you're taking notes, you can put a three right there before that and. This is the third thing. When Paul is praying that our eyes would be open, the eyes of our heart would be open to see what we have in God. This is the third thing that he wants the eyes of our heart to see. He wants us to see the incomparably great power for us who believe. Now, this is where I get fired up. And this is where like, I wanna just like karate chop stuff all day long and like kick open doors because this is what fires me up about the gospel. And I'm gonna try my best not get ahead of myself. But I wanna unpack how Paul unpacks this because I think Paul feels what I feel right now. Like if you gave me a light bulb, it would turn on like just by holding it because this fires me up. Guys, I don't know, everybody's like me. Um, but this fires me up because, I'll just go there. I love these two words. For us. <laughs> this is a God who would, who would say, I'm gonna do all this crazy stuff. I'm gonna raise Christ from the dead. I'm gonna adopt you into a family. I'm gonna put all of my unlimited power on display. And he could totally do that 
for all of his glory and put us in the basement so that we never see it. And you know what he would be? Righteous and just because he kept us out of hell. But what he does instead is he says, I'm actually doing all of this for you. And not just you, because again, in our hyper-individualistic uh, Western culture, oh, it's for me. He loved it all for me. No, it's for us. <laughs> it's us. It's all of us. It's the us. And Paul, uh, he, he gets here with this great power part, and then he can't help himself. He's got to kind of explode and expound on what in the world he's talking about by this incomparably great power that God has for us who believe. And he goes on here. He says, this is the power. It's the same as the mighty strength that he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. I love this. So what, what Paul's saying here is that, you know what kind of power is available to you? The same type of power that can raise a dead Nazarene. The same type of power they can take a guy who was dead for three days after he was buried on a, or he was crucified on a cross. That same power, you know where that can come? To you. In your house today. And I love these words. And I highlighted this for, for a reason. If you got your own Bible, underline that. Raised. Let me say something that may sound weird. Let me explain it. Jesus didn't rise from the grave. Jesus was risen from the grave. And there's a difference. And that's why it says the father exerted his glorious, exceedingly great power as he raised Christ from the grave. See, a lot of times we can think Jesus just rose and like he was just chilling one day. He was just, you know, looking at his watch. He's like, all right, man, am I almost at three days yet? Okay, three days and... Okay, all right, well, we're good. All right, where, who do I need to talk to? What do I do first? Let me roll this stone out of the way. And like, that's how Jesus got up. That is not how Jesus got up. He was risen by the Father. He exerted his power as he rose him up. Now you may be going, why are you making such a big deal about this? You tell me which father you would rather have. Would you rather have a father who when you get knocked down by the worst that the earth can offer you, he comes and picks you up? Or would you rather have a father who just says, get up when you can? I know which one I want. And that's why I want you to see that this father that we have has that same power available to you so that when the, worst, the world gives you the worst that it can possibly offer, we have a father who says, I rose my son, I'll rise you up out of this too. If I can raise Jesus, I can raise you up out of debt. I can raise you up out of anxiety. I can raise you up out of depression. I can raise you up out of divorce. I can raise you up out of everything because I rose my son up. That's the father we have. He wants to see that power, but it doesn't. Stop there. He says, I raised him up from the dead and then I seated him at the right hand. Now he's talking about like the ascension of Christ, how he went to the lowest lows of hell and humbling himself to become obedient, not just as a slave, but as the slave of slaves, as he gave his life for us. Then Jesus says, I'm going all the way to the bottom of the pits of hell and then I'm gonna be risen up to the heights of heaven. In verse 21, he says, he seated him far above all rule and authority, all power and dominion, every name that is invoked, and not in this, just this present age, but also in the age to come. He's saying like, this Jesus has now been risen over the highest point of every authority. And, it, and remember, he's writing this to the church in Ephesus. This was a church who would not have been unfamiliar 
with people, whether it was witches or, or, or people who were practicing the magic, dark arts, or whatever it was, which is all just fake, false things to get people to buy into things. And we have our own different versions now because we would never believe in something as silly as witchcraft. But they would have been totally understanding of this reality that you can call on a name, whether it was the name of the god, it's god Zeus, whether it was the name of Artemis, the, the, who they had built this giant temple, that you could say, I swear by Artemis that I will give you this goat. They were used to that. This fact that there were, there were levels to names. And if I swore by this God's name, it kind of was like a okay swear. And if I swore by this God's name, it was kind of a, you know even better one. And if I swear by Artemis, if I swear by the goddess Diana, it is for sure a promise that I'm gonna keep. And this is why Paul says to them here, he says that our God, this God who is your father now, he has seated him above all rule and authority, all power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in this present age, but also in the age to come. He goes from there to verse 22 and 23, and he continues to talk about what he's done. He said, and this God, he placed all things under his feet and he appointed him to be the head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. So. So Paul says, there's three things. There's three things I wanna pray for your eyes of your heart to be enlightened to. All right, track with me. I'm gonna kind of try to sum all this up the best I can so that you go, okay, I get it. He says, I want the eyes of your heart to be enlightened so that you can see what you really have in Christ. The first thing I want you to see is I want you to see the hope that he has called you to. He called you out of this. That means that he has taken care of your past. He's taken care of all the penalty that was coming because of your sin. And two, he's calling you to a glorious inheritance, which means your future is incredibly secure. And then three, he's saying, I want you to know this power, this power that did four things. And they're in your, in your verse. You can write them down, you can find them. This power that raised Christ from the dead, ascended him to the right hand of the authority, uh, uh, right hand authority over God, this power that gave him all dominion over everything that was on earth and this power that gave him headship over the entire church. So this God has done all of those things. And what's wild, I'll take you back to it, for us, all of that great power, the power that rose him from the dead, the power that seated him at the right hand of Christ as he ascended into heaven, that gave him all authority and rule and dominion, the same power that made him now the head of our church and the church forever. That whole power that he put on display was for his glory, but it was also for us who believe. Now, that's where it all goes back to. Are you in Christ? Are you not? Do you know him or do you not? Because friend, I know what you need. You need this kind of power in your life. You need this kind of hope in your life, but it's only for those who believe. It's only for those who are in him. And so I want to do my best to hopefully try to like put this in a way where you can see it for what it is to be able to, because I know some of you guys are, are more visual people than I am. To sum all of this up, I would, I would say like this. The Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, Spirit, Holy Spirit of God. And this, you see this all tracking through it. The Spirit opens the eyes of your heart to see the gospel of the Son according to the power and plan of the Father. If I had to sum up Paul's prayer, you can take a picture of this if you want to. Maybe it'll help it where you can memorize it and understand it. And I would even say take a picture of this because this can hopefully guide how you pray. This is how Paul is praying for the church. You want to know how to pray for the church here at MCC? Please pray for us like this. Pray that the Spirit opens the eyes of our heart to see the gospel of the Son according to the power and plan of the Father. 
That's, that's our prayer. And this is verse 18 when he talks about the eyes of our heart. But it doesn't really end there. So I want you to be able to see kind of all the things that he's after here. The spirit. Now remember, look at verse 17. This is a spirit of wisdom and revelation. I'm going to give you the whole prayer here. I'm going to kind of break it down in a way that hopefully you can track with it. The spirit opens. Now the spirit is a spirit of wisdom and revelation. That's why it opens our eyes. Because that's what it does in nature. It was created to be a spirit of revelation and wisdom. Now, this is what Paul is explaining here. The Spirit opens the eyes of our heart to see the gospel of the Son. Well, what is the gospel of the Son? Well, the three things that Paul prayed. The gospel of the Son is that you've been called to this new hope, that you've been redeemed and saved and called out of life and the orphanage that is hell on earth, and you've been invited into the family of God. Get on the dance floor, eat some ribs, have fun. You're the prodigal who's now been welcomed back into the family. What's the other part of the gospel? That not only is your past completely forgiven, your future is completely secured. You have the riches of his inheritance. And on top of that, you have the greatness of his power made available to you in your everyday, right here, right now, life. And that's all verses 17 through 18. But he shoots off over here. And he says, don't forget about verses 20 and 22. This is this greatness of his power. It's resurrection, ascension, authority, and it's his headship. That's part of God's plan and power that worked all of this throughout the entire beginning of it so that you could experience it, that I could experience it. And so the, the prayer that I lean into with you now is, do the eyes of your heart see this? And maybe some of you may be sitting here right now going like, this is the first time I've seen it like this. I, I just kind of always saw the things. And every time I went to church, it was all kind of about who I wasn't yet and what I needed to become. You know how I, I, I knew that people were rich? I could tell somebody was rich when, when they invited me to go to the Braves game with them and they didn't pack anything. All right, you know, those of you know what I'm talking about. You had a mama like I had a mama who had like 15 packs of those orange crackers with peanut butter in the middle of them in her purse. All right? But, but imagine, imagine I gave you tickets to the Braves game and I give you the